Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. I'm very excited for my guest today, one of my closest friends, a person whom I've been in bands with, I've taken walks with, I've done podcasts with, the uh, a, a producer on docu-series and the host of a really great podcast called The Regrettable Century, my friend, Jason. How are you, sir? Well, <laughs> <laughs> now everything's good. Um you know, had an earthquake recently. Um, coronavirus uh, still ravaging the city. Plagues, locusts. Uh, and most of all, mediocrity and banality reign supreme and unchallenged. Uh, and so, so basically, basically everything is normal. Yeah, I was going to say, it's business as usual. Yeah. And uh, it's appropriate that we talk about all these things because our movie selection for the day is... I'm going to butcher this again. Guy Bordeaux? <laughs> uh, it's actually Gal Gadot. <laughs> Gal, Gal Gadot. No, it's... Gal Gadot's Society of the Spectacle. I want to see that one. It's all her singing it also. She sings all of Guy Bordeaux. What the fuck is his name? <laughs> it's Guy Debord. Guy Debord, who is uh, related to Gal Gadot. And they're waiting on Gadot. And while they were waiting, they collaborated, and they did this 1973 film, The Society of the Spectacle, which is based on his 1968? Yeah, 67. 67 book by the same name. So we felt like this was a really important movie to talk about. It's it's probably a little different than some of the normal stuff that we cover on this show, but much like when... Um, we did the episode on Falling Down. We feel like this movie has a lot to say about what is currently happening all around us. That being said, I think in the in an effort of transparency, we do have to make a note that this is what, not a movie that you would call a summer blockbuster flick. Yeah, it's, a, it's not what you would call like a fast-paced... Uh, I mean, it's almost not what you would even call a movie. It's like it's right. <laughs> it's it's technically a film in that it is uh, on film and projected that, the way a film is. Right. It's 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 more a film than most films now because they're all digital. So this was this is actually a series of moving images recorded on film and uh, projected back that tell something of a story of sorts. Yeah, it's kind of like if uh, if you just took the book. And you were somehow able to project the book. Like, there's not a single scene in the film, and there's not a single bit of footage that was filmed for the film. Right. There's nothing. There's no linear story. It's really like a an accompanying piece to the book, right? It's like a all the imagery that is in this film sort of reinforces whatever the 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 voiceover that it's essentially reading from his book is trying to convey. Yeah, it's kind of like a collage of moving images that could have been pictures on the page of a book it is it is not so different 
than uh, the scene in A Clockwork Orange where Alex has his eyes pried open and he's watching, you know, just a, a flash series of imageries, uh, I- images sort of to Mozart or Beethoven. Right. I mean, I suppose the, the only difference is here, it's not so much a form of like uh, psychotherapeutic treatment, although in a way it kind of is. I would say it very much is. It's not forced, though. Yeah, not yet. Right. There's, not, there's, there's no one the, the, to, that, to our knowledge, no one is forcing you to uh, be strapped to a chair and have your eyes pried open while watching the society of this spectacle. But just, but just give us a chance. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And if that is, in fact, your kink, uh, we don't judge you for that. We're not kink shaming you if that's if that's what you're into. No, in fact, uh, you could drop drop a mention in the. Uh, how do you how do you how do people contact this podcast? Is it through Twitter? Uh, yeah, Instagram maybe. Just yeah. slide it to slide into Jason's DMs if that's your kink, being strapped to a chair and being forced to watch uh, '60s propagandist uh, philosophy, um, communists, um, art house montage, globally relevant art cinema <laughs> yes do that or or actually really don't don't do that <laughs> which is probably the simply way simplest way to describe this film it's it's um it's again like i guess what we said it is a a visual media piece that is designed to help you digest some of the heavy content of his book and it is exactly that so for those of you who have seen this um, thank you all two of you and for joining <laughs> in. <laughs> and for those of you who are not, normally we would say like, go watch the movie first, then come back to the podcast. It might be better for you to listen to the <laughs> podcast first and then go watch the movie. Yeah, that's probably true. You might be able to understand it. So for those who are about to watch the movie after this podcast, they've got their popcorn cooking. They've got a, a, a cold beverage. They've got some, um, uh, plant-based pharmaceutical, whatever their whatever their uh, bag is, they've got it on standby. What is the society of the spectacle? Um, well, so I think probably the first thing is just to point out really quickly that when Debor is talking about spectacle and the society of the spectacle, he's not trying to invent a new uh, kind of society that is distinct from the one we live in he's trying to describe a, a like a social condition so it's the 1960s and he's trying to describe a condition that is uh apparent and universal in both east and west so like whatever side of the cold war um right he's talking about like a social condition and it's the uh the the way he puts it is this the alienation of capitalist society manifest in every uh interaction between people uh, between people in the world, between people in power, between people and um, their work and their everyday life. And uh, the reason he uses the term spectacle is because he's trying to make a distinction between uh, the two modes of life. One is as spectator, which is like passive recipient of uh, what power has to say to you. And uh, the other mode is participant, which is rare. Um, and the whole the whole point of this is to appeal to people to become participants in history, to become conscious of their role in making the world, rather than to adopt their to continue to adopt the role as spectator, which is just to take in the world and consume it, whether it's visually right through media, which is probably the most obvious manifestation of spectacle, but also through like ideology, where you get your ideas, even what our notion of like. 
uh, our free time and what we do to enjoy, it's all handed to us. And he's like trying to appeal to people to, to take a more authentic and deliberate approach to living life. Right. I, I think that this film and his book, obviously, are very reflective of not only the time in which he wrote it, but it's still, I, I, in fact, I would say way more so relevant to our society today. There's always that the the eternal quandary about what art is. Is it a mirror to society or is it a um, or is it designed to say something? Is it designed to to smash society? Right. And I've always held that it's both. In fact, the best art is both. You know, yeah. How can you smash something if you don't accurately reflect what you're aiming to smash or to change or to destroy? Well, it's like when Brecht says that art is not a, a mirror held up to reflect society, but a hammer with which to shape it. But it's more like a like a hammer covered in mirrors, but I guess mirrors that won't break. Or maybe I've always said it's uh, you are holding up a mirror and then you're taking said hammer and you're smashing the hell out of it. Yeah, that'll work. Although Debord would say the art is dead and impossible. Um but and we'll get into that because he's, that, prone, because to, that, he's just well, prone to provocative statements that like it makes you wonder like what are you really trying to do here and sometimes I think he's just trying to get you to like think really hard about whatever your preconception is not that it's literally impossible to create a work of art well we've we've heard the term for ages that rock is dead right you always hear that phrase rock is dead rock and roll is dead but obviously you can create a rock and roll band you could create a rock band Right, you can create a work of art, but I think realistically speaking, especially within the spectacle, you have to really, you have to really break all the all the um, barriers in front of you to do so. Of which there are a lot. Yeah, and I think like the idea of art being dead is is that uh, art, it's meant to suggest that art, like that a new art movement which just kind of rises organically out of the way that people are living in a given, uh, you know, what in a given environment and that they create a new form of art and it takes a, takes off and it reshapes the way people view the world, like romanticism or surrealism, or whatever, uh, Debord and his cohort would say, uh, in an era where everything is immediately commodified, uh, art movements will always be short lived and, and then recuperated, right? Like, brought over to the other side so that like you know whatever is today thought-provoking and uh whatever controversial and making a statement is tomorrow's uh you know t-shirt slogan or right. you know like <laughs> it's a category on netflix like anti-system movies the idea right. is like that you should it's, the idea isn't that you shouldn't be trying to do those things it's that those things in themselves are they have a shorter lifespan than ever before and, and maybe momentarily I mean, there's a yeah. um, the, the 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 moment when it became very. I mean, without knowing the terminology to associate with it, there was a moment in the '90s where this concept became very apparent to me, and that's when um, the grunge movement, right, the grunge movement in music, right, all these guys coming out of Seattle and and these very sort of working class rural musicians playing this really this sort of mix between punk and metal, dominated the airwaves. You know, for really only a period of about two or three years in its in its peak, right? Within maybe a year or so of Nirvana, Mark Jacobs, a fashion designer, did a whole runway show where people were wearing flannel, a, a piece of clothing that was really out of necessity because they live in a cold climate, and they just they didn't care, right? They weren't trying to make a fashion statement. That in and of itself was twisted to become not only fashion, but high fashion, 
Right. And it used to be, you know, at the time, it's like you go to the thrift store and you go buy three or four different flannels for a couple bucks and that's your wardrobe. And now you can buy those same flannels for, you know, $500 at a boutique shop on Melrose, you know, and like adopt the grunge look. And like, that seems like, I don't know, if you think, if you don't think much about it, it's, it seems fairly harmless and innocuous and that's just the way things are, right? But like, uh, Kurt Cobain killed himself and it, not just because he was like a sad dude and did a lot of drugs, but he, because he, he even said that he was coming to the awareness that he was not going to change the world which was a shock to right. him. And it was like, what is the purpose of doing what I'm doing if it's actually not going to speak to people and help them change and make the world a better place? So it's, a, it's, it's fairly insidious uh, if you think about what the role of the artist is versus what the society does to the artist. Well, let's take it to uh, something out of more of a political slant, something that's really relevant to today, right? Black Lives Matters, for example, or... Um I don't know, Antifa, for example, or um, any sort of youth movement that is moving, or uh, democratic socialism, right? You know, I, I, I have definitely checked. the hip new thing. Well, it, it, you know, it, you wouldn't, it would not shock me if um, I were to walk into Target, for example, and see like a notorious AOC shirt with like a red oh, star. Jesus. There's that sucks so much and it's almost certainly going to be like before Christmas that that's going to be there. I'm actually shocked it hasn't occurred, you know, or like um BLM BLM shirts to be be found in your local H&M, right? Which uses slave labor to make its clothing. Or um you know, it just gets co-adopted. Like, the second it becomes, you found it, didn't you? I, I just looked up Notorious AOC, and you can buy it at Look Human, Tee Public, Zazzle, Teespring, Spreadshirt.com, and so on. <laughs> so it's not at Target yet, but the no, first but wave just, is already underway. Right, and this is what we're talking about when it becomes the spectacle, which is that the moment there becomes a movement that is um, in any way an act of rebellion, let's look at punk rock. Right, we grew up in the punk rock scene. Even by the time we got into punk rock, it was already in 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 the terms of the spectacle dead. Right? Yeah, I mean, it really was like it's it sucks to have been like thirteen or fourteen and think like, oh, I've discovered some way of being, uh, you know, sticking it to the man and being rebellious because you know because it offended like I, my parents and their friends at church. But uh, I don't think it offended the owners of the record companies or the owners no. of like hot topic you know or even yeah, the people well, that paid uh i don't know how much they ended up getting paid for the sex pistols to do that reunion tour at all those stadiums you know it was a broadcast on mtv and it's such a parody of what they originally set themselves up to be um and that was my introduction to it so we were basically we were we were handed a package of like here's what rebellion looks like kids and uh you know, it's not that it did nothing for us. I think I think we're better people for it, right? Of course. But uh, and if you look around, and the world hasn't gotten better, despite the fact that millions of us were punk kids in the '90s. No, and in fact, there are plenty of people that we know who were punk kids in the '90s who then, you know, just it just becomes a part of the their youth, right? In the, in the same way that like. Um, I don't know whatever whatever trendy thing you did as a kid. Uh, you, you read Tiger Beat magazine, or you you experimented with like a weird clothing that you look back as an adult and you're like, oh god, I was so silly back then. Because yeah. and it's not because again, it's not because the art in and of itself 
does it still potentially have some teeth, but it's been so co-adopted that it that those teeth are, are filed down to nubs. You know, even if the artist's best intention is put into the, the music or the art or whatever, by virtue of the fact that it's available by Hot Topic and it's available, it's made in Indonesia so that it can be, you know, ten nine you know, nine ninety nine or whatever it may be. It just sort of takes the, the bite out of it. Right. And I think it's also probably important to like, it's important to acknowledge how easily this could be seen as just like a nihilistic nothing matters everything is everything's already bought and sold and you know your whole identity and self-conception and worldview was crafted for you in a boardroom and so there is no point to anything and that's certainly one read that you could have of uh of this kind of thinking and so it might lead you to want to reject it but i think the, the other side of it is really important is that people like to board and his the the circle around them they call themselves situationists and what they meant by that was that their their purpose was to go out and seek authentic situations, right? Which is like confrontations with an unfiltered reality so as to remind oneself of the possibility of, of participating in life. And that could range from anywhere from, uh, you know, you drifting through the city and just sort of ignoring the boundaries and allowing your own imagination to determine what it is you do all the way to the, what they called the ultimate situation, which was the general strike and revolution itself. They saw there was a direct relationship between uh, periodically as an individual stepping outside of whatever boundaries for however short term you can, all the way to the mass reconstruction of the world as like a project that people deliberately take on. So these are people who very much saw possibility in life. They just thought that they had to start with a ruthless critique of everything that seems normal and acceptable. Well, there, there was a, one of the things that's stated in the film, uh, was a line and it's, there's actually a really interesting technique. I guess it's a literary technique since it's a direct translation from the book, but he will state something one way and then state it with the same verbiage rearranged. So for example, dreaming will be, will remain, um, a social necessity. Right. And he'll lead into that by saying, like, the necessity of dreaming this. And then he'll switch around and say, you know, dreaming will remain a social necessity. He does that sort of wordplay very, very often throughout the movie. And I think part of what I took away from that was that one of the things that the spectacle does outside of just taking away, for example, rebellion, but it actually creates. Uh, an an ideal lifestyle that's not real mm-hmm. that um that creates a need to strive for that is not accomplishable right there's a there's a moment where they talk about um the role that celebrities that stars have right or or i think nowadays we would call it brands because i think it's really more important about brands than it is individuals mm-hmm. But they're allowed a certain amount of success so that they can create the facade that if you work really hard that you could have this this unadulterated lifestyle as well. And that keeps us yearning for something that is actually not only not achievable, but um, keeps us sort of slave to this sort of constant uh, commerce. Yeah. I, yeah, that's important, right? Because it's a, for Debord, who's uh, at, at heart, you know, retains the kind of Marxist critique of capitalist society, which is a society about a certain type of production. Um, 
this is a this is a function of a world which requires you to work in a certain way and consume in a certain way and so something like celebrity or brands uh you know they uh, they're able to they're allowed to sort of express an image of freedom of a, of an actually free life so that it becomes our kind of point of reference for our own lives so that we live vicariously through these people and that's despite our best intentions if you look around everybody like we all have like these celebrities with whom we identify and that we even start to think of our own lives as being like in some way influenced by their lives so like that you know uh, a wild rock and roll kid wants to be like Nikki Six or at least in the 80s right um, right but like you know Nikki Six lives a Sure, he lives a wild life, whatever, but it's also very contained and it's very like um, curated. And you know, if you look at today's life, today's world with like Instagram influencers, like these are people who uh, they're just normal people. Um, They're not even necessarily celebrities. They're not like their lifestyles aren't packaged by a team of executives and brand. uh, I don't, I don't know the term, but you know, the people who who like a PR department. They're crafted by themselves, but in, but in, it's still the same logic. It's like, here's my perfectly curated lifestyle to show you exactly what I want you to imagine that my life is like. So you can imagine what my life, uh, what your life could be. And then, you know, the way they become influencers is they get followers and then they get to start to sell, sell products. And it turns out to be really just a very low cost form of advertising. Right. It's, it's really like, um, almost like a second generation of spectators right it's like a, it's like if if the first wave of the spectacle was done by the advertisers and the marketers and the people who run corporations that are trying to sell you something keeping you buying it feels like in the last 10 years let's say that that same philosophy has been adopted by everyday folks yeah, people have like just the, determined that they figured out that it's all bullshit, and they'll just package their own bullshit, and they will feed you enough of it that you'll identify and idolize them, and then that will in turn create you know profit for them. Right. I think that Debord would call that like the successful colonization of every sphere of life, where even the average spectator is themselves uh, a sort of local manifestation of of spectacle of spectacular power you know that uh that we've so thoroughly absorbed the logic um that we were raised under that uh we no longer need to be just recipients of like a one-way communication from i don't know television radio film or whatever or you know to put it in some other uh the, the other variants of it like uh political speeches or um you know all of the various ways in which messages uh are transmitted to us we are now that's like that lives so deeply embedded in our consciousness that we are ourselves many transmitters of those same kind of messaging Right. And like, it's easy to sort of imagine a world in which, uh, you know, the the music you listen to on the radio or the movies that Disney puts out or, uh, you know, even even the podcasts that that get popularized, you know, Joe Rogan, for example, it's really easy to sort of 
connect the dots with that in terms of the influence that it has on us. But but it also stretches into the political realm, right? I don't think. I mean, look. I remember post or pre twenty sixteen when Donald Trump was just a reality star. You know, but but that had a certain level of um the but he was a star in a sort in a sense, right? I don't think anyone thought that he had any form of uh, political expertise or um or, or wisdom or um managerial skills, leadership, but he presented this facade of a lifestyle of the rich and famous that he was able to parlay into a populist movement that led him to be president. Right. I mean, you could you could say that 2016 is, if not like the crowning moment, then it's certainly an expression of that crowning moment having already passed. That the competition for, you know, who controls, at least nominally controls, right? Because even most people accept to some degree that the president is like a figurehead for power. So the image of power, right? And the contest for the for occupying the image of power is between a reality star and then a person whose credentials are to their to, to the average supporter uh, seeming more presidential. This is a person who right. is, is talks well, you know, speaks well and, and sounds smart and has experience, but in neither case in these vicious, you know, in this vicious combat which actually does affect the lives of, you know, tens of millions of people on either side of this of this contest. The question is like, which image are you more comfortable with? Because in neither case is it a, dis- uh, a discussion about like policy or the right. nature of power, right? It's it's even even today you look and people say, don't you miss this era when you know George Bush or Barack Obama or whoever like. You know, at least they held the office with dignity, which is to say that's an image with which I'm more comfortable. The, the present image disturbs me and I prefer the previous image. But that's it. Which it's that, not like what what about those political eras do you desire in terms of concreteness? What about your own life was better measurably? And what about those things do you want to extend into the future? It's mostly I don't like looking at this. Well, and that's exactly it. That's the dream, right? That's that is the dream that the the spectacle enforces. It keeps us believing along a line that things are fine because things seem normal, and the atrocities that are created within our political figures are atrocities that happen outside of our purview, right? It's overseas, it's in those neighborhoods, it's just out of our eyesight, and therefore the only thing measurably that that one candidate allows over the other is the ability to go to brunch. It's to forget about it. It's to pretend everything is fine. Yeah. So you because walk, it doesn't directly affect you. Right. You walk past this image. I'm comfortable with this, and I'm going to go on and continue in my life. So, like early in the film, it's like within the first few minutes, um, in the narrator, who in the in the the original French is Debord himself. Uh, he says, and this is from the book, that uh, the spectacle is a concrete inversion of life. And uh, I think what he's what he means to say by that is kind of what we've been saying here, which is that, you know, like everything that was once lived has receded into representation so that there's it's it's not like a series of images. It's that the way that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to the world is mediated through images. It's all it's like saying it's phony, but it's not like saying it's the Matrix because this is all concrete reality. This is all these are all actually existing phenomenon. 
but they are uh, they present to us a false image of what they actually mean. That's right. That's right. It's, it's essentially um, well, okay. So to go back to the presidential idea, right? The image. If you look at Trump's opposition, right, Trump being a reality star, I actually think 2020 is the crowning achievement of the spectacle because his opposition is a is a man whose popularity was based on memes that occurred after he left office. That's true. There was, this, there, there was an idea of who Joe Biden was as presented in memes that actually don't do not reflect the man of himself, but but yet we saw that circulation of it enough that people felt like it presented an image, a reality of who he is that doesn't actually match, you know, the, the, the core of his character. Right. So I think that in this case, DeBoer might say that like both of these presidential figures are going to rule on behalf of the exact same group of people with the exact same set of policies. Um, and those people even just rule on behalf of, uh, the logic of commodity production. And that they, at this point, the spectacular power is so entrenched that they needn't even pretend to have uh, conflicting policy visions for the world. It's merely, you know, which image? And in Biden's case, it's it's amazing because it's an image, like, like you said, that it was sort of crafted after he'd already left office. And that's the thing that people are... M- know him best for or at a slightly more sophisticated level it's that they have an image of the obama administration and biden is seen as a as a continuation of that he's an avatar for that period which in their minds was i guess more peaceful and calm and whatever you know despite the the 2008 crash and you know millions of people being foreclosed on and losing their homes and the occupy wall street moment and and the startup black lives matters (laughs) right trayvon martin eric garner the the first round of black lives matter um not to mention like the war in yemen and the war in syria but like you know the image of the obama era that biden is even like a pale reflection of it's like a copy of that image is all phony so right. now we have a phony image of a phony image of a reality, it's, and it's that's what—that's like our you, great hope. Yeah, it's almost when you when you make a, a copy of a copy, and and the, the image just gets further and further deteriorated. It, that's the reality of it. But it's, but somehow still, people believe it's the same pristine photo that they that they have in their head. When when in fact every iteration just gets more and more faded and abstract. Yeah, what's that movie? Uh, Multiplicity. <laughs> yes. With yes. the clones. A, I, well, I actually think that uh, Michael Keaton's multiplicity was based on the society spectacle in many ways. So I wonder which number of Michael Keaton's uh, Joe Biden is. The, the dumbest one, for sure. <laughs> I mean, Definitely. so we think he's the dumbest one, but just wait until like 2024 and we're going to be like, God, don't remember the Trump era when the office of the I presidency know. was dignified? Well, another another way to look at it is gremlins. Right. Every time those gremlins multiplied, you get like Spike, who is Trump, and then you get that dopey. Remember the the second gremlins, the new batch, that dopey one with the weird spinning eyes, the dopey gremlin. I haven't watched Gremlins uh, recently, so I I'm have to take your word for it. Okay. Well, you need to watch if you want to get into some deep political theory. You need to watch Gremlins to a new batch, <laughs> <laughs> which is not only about gremlins running amok, but it's set in a a high-tech um, high-rise that is fully automated. So it's also making, you know, comments on, on automation. But 
it has it has the gremlins uh, start to have more personalities beyond just Spike, which was like the mo- the mohawked evil one, right? Right. And I think that you could certainly draw some parallels there with what's going on in in the media. Right. So this is if you think about it, like it's kind of a trilogy of films. So there's the Society of the Spectacle. There's Multiplicity, and then there's Gremlins 2. Uh, the new batch. The new batch. That's right. Um, um, th- there's another thing that I've noticed that I think is relevant to what this film is, is speaking about, which is causes. You know, banners that people are rallying behind. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think this is really, to me, this highlights how diabolical the spectacle becomes because – None of these banners are inherently bad. In fact, they're quite righteous. You know, we've talked about Black Lives Matter. Um, another one that I see very often is sort of um, this movement against sex trafficking and pedophilia. But, but of course, which who, who wouldn't be against those things and who wouldn't want to champion people of all ethnicities, but especially the black community, which is the most severely affected by police brutality, who wouldn't want to be on the right side of these things? And yet, along a long enough timeline, when you start looking at Instagram timelines, I guess when when the timeline becomes long enough, it just becomes an Instagram timeline. What you see is this sort of bastardization of these movements, wherein people support these things because it creates an identity for them versus actually being focused on the cause itself yeah um like when when in the film when he says that the uh the the spectacle is the very heart of this society's unreality and it is both the project of and the result of capitalist production i think um you know what what he's saying there is that like that it that this society conjures up both the need in the form of like the, the situation that, that, that gives us the need for a Black Lives Matter moment, but then right. it also provides the Black Lives Matter movement, even though, of course, we provide it by virtue of being angry and trying to do something about it. But it becomes uh, a slogan and it becomes uh, a hashtag and it becomes a thing that your city council will you know invest money in, in painting on the street or whatever. Uh, and precisely the way that is most useful to the continuation of the circumstances which gave rise to it in the first place. So the only thing that Black Lives Matter, you know, TM, right, the Black Lives Matter that Mitt Romney will march for and that um, whoever the mayor of uh, Lightfoot, I don't know, the mayor of, of Chicago or the mayor of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. the version of Black Lives Matter that, uh, that, that is going to be allowed to, to become dominant and hegemonic is the one that will, uh, you know, maybe will make police officers read White Fragility um, you know, in seminars, but won't <laughs> do anything won't to take to. away their military budget and their military hardware and their immunity whenever they roam the streets and murder people. Well, and this is why I think it's important for this this film to be watched in particular or the book to be read, because in the same way that we talked about, you know, presidential candidates sort of fitting an image that we can feel comfortable going back to sleep with. I think that these movements we embrace their um, their flaccidness that comes with them being sort of trademarked because it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's easy and comfortable to to uh, support the spray painting of Black Lives Matters on a street corner or to wear a shirt. Um, that is comfortable activism. Uh, it, it is uncomfortable activism to recognize your role in this. Um, 
to recognize the role that our buying power participates in this to to um, come to the realization that our our voting patterns contribute to this those things we don't want to deal with right we don't actually fundamentally want to change the circumstances we want the results to change but only so far as it's convenient for us right and it's it's uh you know deboard's not saying that uh everybody is a moron right what he's saying is that this society is so incredibly sophisticated at maintaining its uh uh dominance that that spectacular power is the screen by which you know the capitalist social order maintains itself it's so effectively that even the most dedicated and diehard and sophisticated fighters against injustice are as susceptible to um playing a role in the maintenance of spectacle as is the person that like you might dismiss as you know sheeple or whatever if you're uh, if you're one of those people right that has contempt for right. the average person um what he's saying is that this society has so much contempt for you that it believes that even your resistance to it however you conceive of it can be used uh as grease on the gears and right. uh, if and that, you look at over the last us. 40 years or 50 years of well, the whole period since Debord's writing this, right, ever since the late 60s and 70s, which is like the high point of cultural and physical and social resistance, and you look at what's transpired since then, you might think he has a point. Right, and that's the thing, because it's not just other people. And, and, and I, and I want to make the note that we're including ourselves in that, yeah. you know, um, because I'll give you a great example. There's a, there's a moment in the film when it talks about the desire to own a commodity, to own a product, diminishes exponentially the moment you own it. So, for example, you want um, that new shirt or that new car or whatever it is, you know, new shit for your witch altar, you know, even stuff that you think is is, is alt culture, right? But the moment you get it, it... it the value that you placed on it to motivate you to, to buy it drops to almost nothing. It's like a car driving off a lot. It's, it, its value just completely diminishes because now it's just one more thing in your cupboard. And we're all very guilty of that. Right. And the way that the spectacle has, you know, is, is the colonization of everything um, by the, the logic of the commodity form is that everything that, that you just said about the shirt or whatever whatever given commodity is also true of experience. So think about like how every week or so there's a new uh, online cause that everybody gets a certain dopamine rush for joining in the Twitter pile on and the call outs and whatever. And it's the same it's the same thing. It's like the even the way in which we try to participate in like changing the world is the same functionally of an experience as just going out and shopping for the latest whatever gadget that like it that that it all has the same logic of being short term and temporary and and really never fulfilling the role that we intend for it to do which leaves us needing more and more all the time and i think that's no it's no coincidence that in the realm of you know experience and i think that that should be said in quotations right <laughs> in the realm of experiences right. in trying to participate in causes or whatever that our, our means of our mechanism for doing so are these like massively successful multi-billion dollar companies that make up what we call social media 
that they, they serve the same function as like a Walmart or a Target does when you go to buy Better, a shirt, you know, more efficient. It's just the commodification of, of another aspect of life. Uh, so that again, like just to go back to the, to the film, everything that was once directly lived has receded into representation so that even, you know, doing something so, uh, important as, I don't know, trying to take down a pedophile ring, right? Is really just a, is the consumption of an image of, of activism or of, of participation. Um, and right, it, and it a, helps, and it helps move units because they sell ad dollars as you use, right. as you use the social media platform in the first place. And you're participating in the very thing that is causing or, or is uh, propping up at very minimum the, the thing that you're trying to take down. You know, there's a, the way social media works. I watched an interview once and uh, with a former Silicon Valley tech engineer, right? Mm-hmm. And social media is designed, the, 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 the actual programs themselves are designed to engage you by any means necessary. That is their sole function, engage you, get you swiping, get you clicking, get you commenting, get you liking. That's its job. Whatever does that the most, that's what it will feed you, which is not inherently bad or good. It just is. It is just its function, right? What becomes bad is that its entire business model, right? If that's the actual functionality of the program, its business model is built around advertisement that is sent, that is sold based on your interaction. And, and therefore, things like things that infuriate you, for example, things that make you angry, things that make you – that give you a dopamine rush for putting a, a black square on your, on your Instagram, those things will be fed to you at an alarmingly fast rate that makes you believe you're accomplishing something when in fact all you're doing is feeding the machine which owns the police – militarized system and the the prison systems and the corruption in the government and all the other things that you're very upset about the pedophile rings right it's always these like hollywood elite these industrial elite well guess who's making money off of all of your online interaction right i mean i guess who owns the not just the 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 patents and trademarks for the for the software that make up the platform, but also like the physical infrastructure where the servers house the the capacity, the computing capacity for the software to even work in the first place. So like in the film, um, I think this is really poignant. He says, workers do not produce themselves. They produce a power independent of themselves and that the forces that escape us display themselves to us in all of their power. And, you know, th- this whole this whole discussion about the way that social media platforms are just like any other powerful institution that we like play a role in perpetuating by working in it, you know, even in the sense of working in social media by for free, because we like curate an image that gets sold just by taking our personal life and putting it on display. Um, It's the same as working in a factory and building cars and then not being able to afford the car that you just built. Like our role as producers is to make things powerful things, which we don't have access to that then are lorded over us and are on our tools of domination. And at very minimum, it's to create things that then become our masters. 
because they're they're images that we are constantly striving to achieve and it's not always like money things you know um it can be like that hobo chic look it can be like that revolutionary tanky it can be like the intellectual it can be the magician it can be any anything that exists any preconceived identity that can exist is produced by us and or you know the society as a whole and then we are constantly striving to achieve that by way predominantly of buying things yeah so in the end so in the in uh in in reference to that i think my favorite of all of the uh the spectacle is right because he periodically refers to re- returns to this theme of like the spectacle is and then gives like a a sort of pithy little definition of what the spectacle is my favorite one is the spectacle is a permanent opium war which is you know it's a reference to this historical moment where the british uh at, by force of arms uh break down all these trade barriers and uh flood china with opium to create an opium market by creating opium addicts so that now china needs opium which means they need the british in order to get the opium in the first place it's a it's an artificial need uh, that was forced upon them violently and it is destructive and yet now that we've gotten the addiction we fucking need it right and so uh you know that's what that's the logic of what any drug pusher does is they create the need by forcing you into into ex- uh, experimenting with the product in the first place and the spectacle is a permanent opium war in the sense that every single need is artificial right so now i need this like I don't know how many how many times do you encounter somebody saying like oh we live in such a wonderful futuristic society like I have this wonderful device now that like no matter where I am you know I can I can just check work emails and I can it's like that's not a need to be perpetually available to your boss even when you're not at work that's the colonization of your time that's an artificial need and they've created a need by creating the device which allows for that to happen and now that it exists you had better have one because you had better be available at all times. And then well, and we talked and it works in our and it works in our leisure time, too, because now we have to be perpetually available to everyone else. Right. Well, and, and we talked a little bit about just briefly, we touched on like sort of the cancelness world, right? Cancel society. I won't use the CC word, but phrase. But <laughs> but even in that, like, what is the what is the 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 the, the highest level of efficiency within canceling someone? is to get their job to fire them, right? Like at its most poignant, the hope is to get a job to make a moral decision on an employee and strip them of the ability to make income, which without really probably thinking about what we're doing, what we are essentially empowering businesses willfully is to reign over morality like do we want walmart deciding what is moral or not yeah i like the idea that uh that social justice now is i mean you know not fully but for a certain section of society uh social justice is envisioned as giving bosses more power over workers which to me just makes me shudder. And it's that to me is separate from the question of what actually is right and what actually is moral. Correct. You know, because there are plenty of horrific things or even just on the other side of the scale, mildly problematic things that people do 
which we do need to figure out how to check and rein in or whatever. But I think that those have more to do with people living uh, empowering and authentic lives so that they're not constantly displacing their frustration onto their fellow human beings. But I don't think it's got anything to do with uh, giving the people whose interest is uh, in, in you know busting your union or firing you if you try to start one or you know keeping wages low or cutting your vacation time or keeping you employed on a temporary basis when what you need is a full-time job to give those people even more power uh, and, a, and, a, and a justification for uh, cracking down on people under the guise of being uh, woke, right? Social justice. So like right. if we just look at the way that power is applied and, and where pressure is applied, it's not, um, I don't think we should, we shouldn't trust these people. So who's going to get uh, fired because they got canceled at work? It's going to be troublemakers more often than not. It's going to be people who actually represent a problem for the company. It's not going to be people who don't. It's not going to be people who have a, a very important role to play within the company. So all we're doing is giving them uh, a, a better sounding justification for having more control over us, both as individuals and as, as you know, employees or as, as workers. That's right, and and I and I feel like it is a, um, you know, I, I, without sounding overly harsh, like I do understand to some degree why, because this is something that we have lived within in its in its uh, at the top of the bell curve of its reign for all of our existence and probably our parents, and you know there used to be a time when when if uh, if if someone was accused of wrongdoing, let's just use for example sexual assault. We might have said, go to the police. Well, I think, at least currently, there's a section of people who don't trust the police, and that doesn't seem like a viable option, which makes sense, and I agree with. But the alternative that they have found is to take that power from the police, which they know is bullshit, and hand it over to owners to own more of our lives, which is more scary to me, frankly. Right. And in either case, uh, it, it's it's the same role for us to play as individuals, which is as spectators. It's as a uh, as a witness to the assertion of power and dominance over us. We're just choosing new masters. I don't trust the state, right? The police, courts, judges, politicians. So um, who else is in charge that I could trust instead? And it's you know CEOs, executive heads of HR departments. But in neither case is it. Um, our community, um, right. our neighborhood, our class, however you want to conceive of a, of a broader collective entity, ourselves as individuals, our immediate personal relations, good friends or whatever. Who is to arbitrate over our lives? Well, it's somebody else in power, somebody who uh, has displayed to us that they are already in power. So I think as, it, as this conversation relates to the film, it's that that is a displacement. What we're, what we're doing right now is we're engaging in a displacement of our own power as people uh, back onto those who dominate over us. And in both cases, whether it's cops or, or managers, the, you shouldn't trust them to like actually arbitrate justice in any way that would be fulfilling and actually meet the needs that we have to, to, to heal from traumas, to get justice from, from wrongdoing, to make a safe environment. That's actually a However painful and, ho- and awful the experience, that is a collective project of, of, of ours rather than of right. theirs. 
And that's like the central right. theme of the film over and over again is that like you're either going to be a spectator to the world or you're going to be a participant in the world. So I think that that really opens the question, right? We've been sort of, you know, there, there, there's the possibility that people could be listening to this and say, wow, these guys are pretty doom and gloom. And that, that that's would be partly act, true. That's, at least. <laughs> that's appropriate. Yeah. But but OK, so what's the answer then? So what are this? I mean, look, I, I don't think anyone is saying, hey, tomorrow change your life and be completely different because that's just not feasible within the the broad reaching tentacles of the spectacle but what what are some things that people can do can take away from this film that might help at least on some level push back against it's the spectacle's influence well so i think it it's probably significant that um in the film early on he says that uh you know, that, that theory can only be realized by historical action. And what he means by that is like taking back what has been expropriated from from us. So he means that in the classical sense of like our power as producers um, should be taken back in the form of like ownership. But he also means it in the realm of what we call um, the, the everyday life, like satisfaction, adventure, love, all the things which make up um, desire and in the fulfillment of desire that makes up for an authentic life, um, and I think I think it also is significant that at the end of the film or toward the end of the film, they, he dedicates a, a fair bit of footage and commentary to the May '68 rebellion, um, the sort of near revolution in France that was kind of like the high point I think of of all of their lives and also the point of reference for what the closest to arriving at an authentic uh, situation of human freedom that uh, that Debor can imagine, but so something in between those two things uh, in the everyday is probably important to to try to figure out. And I think he doesn't talk about it in the film, not very much. But um, he, he sort of hints at there's bits of situationist theory that are hinted at in the film, like when he talks about. Um, the hijacking of all of this various footage from different films for the purpose of giving it new meaning, which is to say it's like as, as an art project, like, you know, he, he, he intentionally went around and found footage and imagery that had its own meaning and then he stole it and then he put his own, he put it together himself and he put his own commentary over it. And he says, uh, where is it? He says that plagiarism is necessary to give, uh, you know, to perfect new ideas or to perfect ideas and to give them greater truth. Um, so just as an individual, one of the things he's saying is like, you know, you can make make use of what has already been handed to you, but try to make it, make use of it for your own purposes. Um, another thing that, that, that they would do is uh, what they call the derive, which is just means to drift. And it is a, a, a practice of you know, wandering about in the city and trying to just engage with life outside of the official confines of commerce so that you don't just go like, let's go here because there's a market or let's go here because there's a movie theater or let's go here because of whatever. But that like, me and my friends are going to wander around and just sort of do what occurs to us. And that might mean uh, trespassing. It might mean making new friends along the way. It might mean like, uh, you know, it's, it's it's just about like 
allowing the environment to give rise to your imagination and how you would interact with it in the same way that you might wander about in a forest and to treat right. the urban landscape the same as the natural landscape. And that, you know, what I think, uh, go ahead. Well, just that the point of these things is as, 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 as everyday activities is to, to try to like when possible to step outside of, of a, of a crafted world where the, your purpose for being somewhere is already given to you and to try to retain your ability to, to develop your own purpose for being somewhere, even if it makes other people, even if it makes the society uncomfortable because you're not like doing things the right way. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of importance to sort of putting down the banners, which is not to say don't care or don't don't fight for things that are to make the world a better place. Quite the opposite, that making the world a better place or, or being more involved with it requires involvement. You know, it requires getting off your couch. It requires releasing the need to belong, releasing the need to be identified and it's to connect with what you're, I mean, just, I guess, you know, to quote Crowley, like, find your will, your personal will, your personal desire, your personal place and need in life that is outside of the bounds of an easily identifiable tagline. And, and in that, allow that to guide you so that you can step out of the flow that uh, it's like being in traffic, right? It's like being on the highway, the freeway, right? And you're stuck in traffic and you're going a certain direction because that is the direction and the GPS is telling you which way to go and you're just following along and the music is blaring. So you're not even, your attention to your direction is minimal and you're simply going because you're being told to go and it's the pathways have been designed for you to go that way and everyone else is going that way and that is that feels like organization that feels like structure and that feels mm-hmm. safe stepping outside of that figuring out what your own desires are what your own will is what your own um what what brings you your own place in the world and doing whatever is necessary to capture that even if it's in moments even if it's in brief fleeting moments, so that at least within the existence of your life, there are times when you are in fact free of the spectacle, even if it's for an instant. Right. And actually, I think that that's an important point that you make there, that even if it's only for an instant, because for Debord, like, this is about resisting uh, the training that is just going along. Not so that, you know, your life is going to be fulfilling because you resist the training, but rather that so that when those genuine opportunities for reshaping the world comes, that there is an imagination left within you and within all of us to to leap ahead into the future as opposed to falling back on on what is comfortable already. So in the film, he says only revolution will revive the possibility of authentic journeys within authentic lives. Um. But the danger is, is in if you're only waiting for it, and if uh, if our lives are lived in a way which is uh, handed to us as the acceptable way to live, when those moments of rupture come, um, the fear is that we will only imagine what we have already had, but just better somehow, as opposed to being able to imagine whatever we want, because we have lived our lives in such a way as that our imagination is constantly stoked. So it's an alternate training, right? Like if, if everyday life is training you to perpetuate everyday life, 
what the board is appealing to us to do is to try to live our everyday life in such a way as to train us for those moments when we can reshape everyday life and, and actually have the tools to do it. And inspire others in your actions. Yeah. You know, because I think when people see people who are living free, again, not not under any illusion that you can really truly live that way from the birth to your death, but in enough inspiring moments that it might it might motivate someone to leave behind the comfort levels of their existence. And I think that's what this film is asking for, because to your point, there may come a time and, and maybe you could argue there will come a time when our very reality will force us to reshape it. I think I think anyone who studies capitalism long enough knows that it is going to come to an inevitable halt at some point. It will eat its own tail. Right. And six- so when that moment occurs, when that moment occurs, will you be ready to pick up the ashes and create a brand new world? Right. And like, you know, if 1968 was the point of reference for Debord, he looks at the f- mass flowering of human potential and then the horizon goes away very quickly and he blames the existing institutions of working people, the Socialist Party, Communist Party and trade unions who look at this opportunity at this moment as an opportunity to like win gains, better contracts, better wages, you know, some new laws, but ultimately keep everything intact. And so what he's saying is like, look, this opportunity will come again at some point. And when an opportunity like this comes again, we can't rely on these institutions, which have trained us to accept the dominant uh, parameters, but just, you know, uh, give us some longer chains within the within the zoo or, or however you want to however you want to conceptualize it. And I think that this is a, this is a, a worthwhile thing to revisit as we look at um uh, a slowing down economy in the United States, the the coronavirus crisis, the the absolute political crisis that will come no matter how the election goes, the fact that people are being thrown off unemployment, they're looking at 28 million new um, potential uh, uh, foreclosures, which means a mass spike in homelessness. Like things are about to get crazy and very uncomfortable, and in as much as that's something that that should make us, you know unhappy and upset we also ought to look for the opportunities to reshape our world out of that chaos rather than just look for opportunities to put it back how it already was if there was any central theme of the film that would be it right there right i think i think people oftentimes see discomfort as a bad thing um even even um sorrow and strife as bad things but in fact they are they are the moments in which our potential can be fully realized. You know, when things are in the most upheaval, it's when we have the opportunity to really showcase what we're capable of as a society. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment, obviously. We talk about entertainment here all the time. There's nothing wrong with leisure, in fact, which I think sometimes gets lost. Totally. The more deep people get into like political theory, it's like, oh, we can't ever relax. Well, no, you, you, you there is a life worth living but but let that leisure be dictated by something other than the ads you know let the let the let that leisure let that moment of of reprieve come from something that is from within and not hoisted upon you right let let our free time genuinely be free and not just an extension of the pattern of 
work, consume, repeat. Right. I mean, I love my dad to death, but my dad for a long time, oftentimes whenever he sort of got ahead financially, he'd buy a new truck or he'd go on a cruise. And it's because he worked so hard. He just wanted that that little bit of reward for the efforts that he put in. Of course. But of course, the byproduct of that is that he now then owes money on something, and which means he's got to slave away again in order to pay that off. And it's a it's a perpetual cycle that people find themselves into without even really giving conscious thought to it. Right. We have to find other ways of creating and cultivating meaning in our individual and in our collective lives that yes expand our imagination and our capacity to envision a world worth living in so that we might actually be able to create it absolutely my favorite quote of the whole film which i had uh i was unaware of before um because i guess it's been a long time since i've seen this but it says uh there's it's it's a, a moment when debord is actually on camera um just for a moment it's just like it's, it's a, a photo of him and over it he says i am determined to be a, the spoil sport of these frivolous days and i just i really like that like <laughs> he's like i don't care if this uh really bothers everybody if it, it's uncomfortable and it upsets people and people think it's dumb like i'm determined to ruin your phony good time and challenge you to have an actually good time oh we're definitely getting canceled after this podcast <laughs> Um, so anyways, you know, look, this is not a movie that you can kind of sit down and, and just watch halfway while being on your phone. It's, it's heady stuff, but it's important stuff. And I think that, um, if you enjoy, like, if you're just listening to this podcast because you love movies, I still think it's relevant. I think it's relevant because we should at least be conscientious of what we're ingesting and what its intent is and what its impact on us is. And you can still choose to watch, you know, Avengers, but like if you know what its design is and you know what its direct impact on you is, then your ability to understand it as a piece of work, be it art or media or a commodity, will be vastly deepened. Not to mention the impact that it hopefully has on your personal life in, in small ways and big. So... So check it out. Um, we on this podcast we rate movies, and uh, we use a very old, very um, esoteric method that has existed within ancient occultic groups for for centuries. When they went to rate a piece of art, and that's called the the tusk rating, based on Kevin Smith's uh, magnum opus Tusk. So zero out of five tusk. How would you rate the Society of the Spectacle? <laughs> I've never. Um, so first of all, I've never seen Tusk. Um, well, that's changing today. Well, so uh, I, but I presume that more Tusks are are, good. are yes. better than 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 fewer Tusks, right? Yes, that would be accurate uh, assertion. So I will say that um, having read the book. And then watch the film. I think that the film is uh, is true. I mean, it's the same person, right? The filmmaker and the and the art and the author. Um, but it's it's a it's a good encapsulation of what's in the book. And it is it is engaging to watch. And the use of imagery is 
not distracting from the message, but it's also not so ham-fisted as to be like, this image perfectly corresponds to the words on the screen, so now you get it. Sometimes they are completely incongruent, and that is interesting in itself. So I want to give it a lot of tusks. <laughs> I suppose I'll give it four. Okay. And the only reason I won't give it five is because I just feel like uh, a perfect film is is hard to come by, and I'm not sure that if, if the first time I'm going to say I found a perfect film, it's this one. Right. I, I think four is pretty accurate for me as well because I because of its importance and because it's engaging and because you, you really do have to pay attention to it. And um, and for that reason alone, uh, that is the that is the goal of an artist is to get people to pay attention to your message, to engage them. And it does that successfully. That being said, it's not a traditional film. And you maybe could even argue it's not a film. It's a, uh, you know, v- visual audio media piece um not so different that you might see than in a in a museum than a cinema but um it's worthy of watching it's worthy of digesting and even if it confuses the hell out of you that probably has a pretty great impact on your life going forward than something that's a lot more easily digestible so there's a an interesting little bit of trivia about this film is that when i first moved to los angeles there was a theater the name of which now escapes me, but um, they used to show old... <laughs> Dave, you probably know which uh, theater this is. You probably... The name will come to you, but they used in to show Austin? old... No, no, in, in L.A. Oh, they used to LA. show old films all the time, um, and it rec- and it's closed down. It doesn't exist anymore. The, the silent theater? Maybe it's the silent theater. But when I first moved to L.A., they showed this. They did a screening of this, which I believe might have been the first time it was ever screened in the United States. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure really that counts as a bit of trivia because I might be wrong about that being the first time. I, I think you're right. I actually vaguely remember that. And I do think it was a silent media on Fairfax, which has sadly since uh, closed down. But um, it, it's worth it's worth checking out. Give us your thoughts. Let us know what you think about it. Let us know what you took away from it. And maybe let us know what little what little moments of change you might start enacting in your own life just to just to mix it up just to see if you don't like it i guess you could always go back to being a spectator but it's certainly worth uh, you've got a very finite amount of time in your life it's worth uh pushing the boundaries and seeing if you could live it a little bit more deeply hmm. now we on this show have been doing for the last few weeks a tournament of sorts are you a fan of which movies i would say i'm a fan of which movies in fact i watched uh just very recently, I watched The Craft and I watched The Witch, and I've got a few other witch movies queued up as I anticipate the the death of my least favorite season, Summer, and the birth of the best season, which is The Fall. Absolutely. So funny that you mentioned The Craft because that is one of the movie, the two movies that were competing this week for supremacy over which movie is the best witch movie. So it was The Craft versus Practical Magic. Mm. Care to wager as to which one came up victorious? I'm going to say that the craft came up victorious. You would be accurate. About double, 6-9 to 36 votes. So um, we want to appreciate everyone who voted. Uh, it will move forward next week or this current week. We're going to be having two more movies compete against one another. Go a little lighter fare. You know, the, like these last two movies were very steeped in the 90s, and the next two movies are going to be a little bit more kiddish, perhaps. We're going to have uh, Hocus Pocus. 
which people really love. Yeah, I mean, Hocus Pocus might win. It doesn't even matter what it's competing against. Well, it's competing against uh, a Japanese anime film called Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, that's the stiff which, competition. Which is a beautiful film. It's really wonderful. It's about a young girl who's uh, at 13, has to go out into the world. She's a young witch, and she has to go out into the world and sort of make her place. And so she decides to start a delivery service, delivering things on her broom. And uh, hijinks and coming-of-ageness occurs. Hmm. So if you if you haven't seen it, watch both movies again uh, and then vote. Vote all week. You can vote on the Slasher app. They'll do a post on Monday, same as this episode drops. And then go over to the Grindhouse Podcast Instagram and feed the machine and the spectacle and go on our stories and vote <laughs> for which which movie you like the best. Because once again, we're all... We're all plugged into the Matrix. Um, I have a couple of audience questions. Would you like to answer those with me? Hell yeah, let's do it. Questions from Macarept. Atomic Watchdog asks, will we ever see the rise of a collection of film auteurs like Scorsese and Coppel in the 70s or Tarantino and Rodriguez in the 90s again? Hmm. So, I tend to be fairly pessimistic about... uh, the rise of anything which we would, uh, we, which we would see as like uh, a revival of something good from the past. Um, so it's to me this question is similar to will there be another Sex Pistols moment in music? And I should first say that uh, of course I hope so. I would desire this, but I I think my my tendency is to assume probably not. And if we do, it will be as a result of. Uh, the massive reshaping of our world uh, in the way that we alluded to in the discussion about the society of the spectacle. But given the trajectory we're on now, my expectation is what we will see the rise of is uh, less and less notable, um, you know, types of, of, of film types of music and, and the people who represent it with notable exceptions. Like there will be like directors and filmmakers that will stand out, but overall I see the trajectory is downward in the, the the marvelization of all things yeah it's tricky because you know what the question seems to be asking is not will we have poignant filmmakers those will always exist from time to time you know even within the the majesty of that is the spectacle's power there are cracks where every once in a while an artist truly gets through but if we're talking about like large groupings of artists like uh um you know france in the what was it, the 30s when all those artists were sort of gathered together? Oh, the or, kind of like the, the the period that Hemingway writes about in The Movable Feast? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. like late 20s and early 30s, that period. Yeah, you know, or, or the 70s when you had all these auteur filmmakers like Scorsese or Coppola who not only were putting out great arts individually but sort of seemed to act as a, as a collective of sorts. And then, you know, you could, to a lesser degree, maybe even Tarantino, Rodriguez, Kevin Smith – you know, uh, John Farvo, those sort of the 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 Miramax Kateers, so to speak. You know, when indie had its sort of revival. Uh, the tricky thing is, is that those groups tend to come from the underground. And as we talked about with our review of the Society of the Spectacle, the underground is harder to be underground. The moment it, it even starts to be that, it becomes uh, easily sellable on at Hot Topic. So what you get is sort of a pale comparison of uh, times since past. But that being said, all the more reason why true rebellion is necessary and a true rejection of things is possible 
And there certainly could be a collective of artists who aim to do, do just that. And, and um, how long that can last, that's really probably more the relevant question than to whether or not it can exist sure. at all. Yeah, I mean, look, let me let me modify my answer a little bit because I think I think I agree with you. Um, if if we will see it, it will be very conscious and deliberate, and it won't just be I think because a, a, a collection of individually brilliant people happen to be near each other. It will be a conscious project of people seeking each other out in order to be a collective of uh, creators of new, interesting, thought provoking film and so that will be um so the question then is like how do we find each other right right so i guess the answer is ultimately it's up to you guys and us and everyone to seek this out and to create this so that we may we may push the envelope we may hold that mirror up and that hammer up and decide which image to smash all right next question Biden's short circuit asks, who plays Biden and Trump in the movie about the 2020 election? Hmm. Leonardo DiCaprio. He just plays them both? Plays them both. Um, I'm going to go with Johnny Depp because he's already played Trump in a little short. Did you ever see that? that, that there was a, a mock movie of The Art of the Deal where, where tr- um, Johnny Depp played Trump and did so eerily well. I didn't see that, but I could totally see him doing it. My My... my as long as he plays both, because what I really want to see is a portrayal of these two twin pillars of spectacular power as, uh, you know, on the surface level, different manifestations of what at the core are essentially the same thing. And I think that Johnny Depp is a person who could, he's the kind of actor who could give the unique flavor of each while being able to present uh essentially mirror images of his own performance uh, you know who else right. could do it would be gary oldman but it might be too gary sincere oldman, yeah. because gary oldman is the best actor of all time yeah um, he, he wouldn't be it wouldn't i don't know if gary oldman as, as wonderful as he is i'm not sure if he, if he can truly encapsulate the absurdity of of these two buffoons right the only thing that i really hope is that in this portrayal that it couldn't fit alongside anything that's portrayed on Saturday Night Live. Oh God, absolutely not. Absolutely so it can't, right, it so can't be, um, who the hell is it? White, White Mel Rage or any of those dumb skits. Oh, but what's, it, what's the fucking actor's name who does Donald Trump? Oh, Alec Baldwin? Yeah, it can't be Alec Baldwin who just plays Donald Trump as he is, which is like, the, the man is beyond parody in that way. You got to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, you actually have I, I think, to have a criticism of the absurdity of the whole thing, not just the man himself, which is why I think you're right. Johnny Depp's the one for it. Yeah, Johnny Depp. The only other person I would say who could probably put it off is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah, I want to see Nicolas Cage as Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Either one of those, either one of those would be spectacular. And I can't, I don't even know what filmmaker would be. But you know what? Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. I think is has the has the um, the gumption to direct either Nick Cage and Johnny Depp in a 2020 movie about the selection in which one of them, whichever one he cast, plays both roles. So there you go, Kevin Smith, get on it, get on it. All right, well, thank you guys, uh, thank you, Jason, for coming on the show, helping explain the society, of the spe- uh, the spectacle. I'm starting to sound like Joe Biden now. It's just short circuiting all over the place. I hope that um, in some ways we've we've caused you to maybe look inward and question a few 
absolute truth that you were previously holding. That is um, the, the 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 role of art for me has always been to re allow you to reassess reality. What you do from there is is of your own of your own making. But um, I I want to thank you again for coming on and explaining this movie and explaining some of the philosophies behind it. And hopefully we've inspired a few people today. Right on. Word. Thanks for letting me come on. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. Make sure to vote uh, on the big machine about which movie is which and which 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 movie is best. <laughs> and until next time, <laughs> just going full by now. Cool. cool thank and you good. guys again. Yeah. Adios. Peace out. Bye. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Unplanned Outro Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. 